Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Trainee Members Committee of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. My name is Dr Adelina McLeod and I'm an ST6 in geriatrics and I have with me here today Dr Mike Cook who is a GP working in Newcastle. Hello and welcome Dr Cook. Hello there, thanks for having me. So Dr Cook, welcome to the podcast. I just wanted to explore how you've changed your service, so how general practice has changed in response to the COVID crisis? So what we've had to do is go to a a triage first model. We were quite fortunate in that we already were using software capable of full triage in the practice. We weren't utilizing it to the full, but we've been able to convert to a full uh, triage first model, meaning that every patient contact comes through the same online server and we're able to triage with one of our senior GPs immediately, who is medium priority. And if we were to reach a situation where we weren't able to deal with all the patient workload, what workload would be not dealt with on that day? And that's allowed us to sort of essentially put our strongest foot forward and make sure that our strongest uh, foot's at the back as well. Um, Meaning that all patients who are seen face-to-face at the moment have both the initial assessment by a GP, but also a final second assessment by one of our senior GPs in order to maximise the essentially the clinical need of any face-to-face contact. We were quite early on um, quite aware of our potential role as a, as a essentially a vector and super spreader um, in this and we we wanted to make sure that very early on we were justifying every patient contact in our building from a point of view of, of spread uh, and flattening the curve. Thank you for that. So in terms of the patients who would have normally visited your practice, how has the process changed for them and what has been the impact on them? So the, the key bit has been taking advantage of, of every possible communication channel that we have. Um, fortunately, as a result of the, the model we use, most of our patient traffic comes through our, our website initially. And it's been a, a real challenge keeping that, all of that information very up to date and very clear about why we're doing what we're doing and how we're doing what we're doing in order that patients understand how and why as we were making some of these changes slightly ahead of the the public message the key bit is once we have made full fully clear what the the messages are is is being being open with patients about that at the moment we are dealing with a large amount of uncertainty that's nothing new for us in general practice we we don't always have all of the information to make risk-based assessments and this is no different Um, the the non-urgent work has been relatively relatively well understood by patients that they are that we are moving this back at the moment as we don't understand the risks of them coming into the surgery we do understand the risks of them having uh, the staffing decision delayed for three months and the sorts of numbers that we're dealing with patients are for the most part accepting of it equally when we are talking about slightly more challenging patients where we normally would see them face to face for the genuine clinical value is sharing some of that risk with patients and making them know that we are what we would do in a normal circumstance what the options are in this circumstance and essentially minimizing those risks as much as possible so for example doing the majority of the consultation non-face to face through distance methods like video or phone and then the patient attending in the absolute minimum need for the surgery. So, for example, we've had blood tests done out of car windows. We've had uh, SATS probes dropped into passenger doors in, in, this, in the surgery. Patients are waiting in the car park to be collected, brought in, no touch on anything. They're, they're not getting a chair. And we're doing absolutely everything we can in order to minimise their contact and exposure in the building. 
So it sounds like you are very much doing dynamic risk assessments and changing practice in response to that as you go. I wondered if there were any specific things that you found have worked well um, and things that you may have tried that have worked not so well that you can share just for other people's learning. So certainly some decisions that we made early on, we, we have, have reversed. We were, there was very little that was acutely time sensitive. So for example, things like the decision to suspend all planned injections um, within a, a week or so, when, once we'd had our sort of minimum, minimum contact procedures, we've reintroduced things like Zolodex injections, which initially decisions to, dis, to delay for a week were unlikely to cause significant clinical harm decisions to delay for longer would have been um, before guidance came out about DMARD bloods for example we were very keen that they stayed in the surgery rather than going to sort of phlebotomy sites in the local local environment again trying to minimize potential cross uh, cross mixing of patients what we are starting to come into now is is more situations where an element of a trial of time for certain patient groups have meant that certain cases have come around a second time and again by working together with colleagues and cross-referencing what we're doing, we've still feel we've been able to manage those patients safely and sharing both the risks with them and the expectations as well. Thanks very much for sharing that with us today. One thing that has been quite topical in the media recently are conversations around the access for community providers to personal protective equipment. I wonder whether you could just touch on that and let us know how you are managing with that. And if there's anything that you are specifically doing that's allowed you to use that resource in the best way possible. So, yes, because we went quite early to a a significant reduction in our our patient contacts and having all of our patient contacts dealt with by one clinician, uh, we have managed to ration our use of of PPE quite tightly uh, between one GP and one nurse each day um, and two clinical rooms. That's meant that we aren't yet reaching critical points with our our PPE and we should be able to receive receive stocks to replenish what we've been using um, within the time frame that we're going to need them. We have also made measures to to try and source PPE off our own routes uh, rather than just through the, the conventional methods. At the moment, it's not a problem we've ran into, but if we'd waited a, a further week or two and kept relatively high patient contact numbers in those in those couple of weeks, I could see a situation where we would already be out. I just wanted to move the conversation on a little bit. There's been lots of discussion around encouraging patients to have conversations with their family about advanced care planning. And I feel that to some extent, this has been sensationalised by the media. My feeling professionally as a geriatrician is that this is something that I do every day and is a little bit bread and butter of my practice. I wondered if you had any perspectives as a GP as to whether there has been any change in your practice, just to see if we can dispel some of the myths about this. So obviously advanced care planning is something that we do relatively regularly as as general practitioners for cancer and non-cancer diagnoses and advanced frailty and and any number of um uh, and any number of of cases often it's opportunistic often it's diagnosis related but this obviously this situation does offer a a very different and very challenging extra dimension to um to that sort of discussion as a lot of what we're discussing with patients are things they're familiar with. They're familiar with the patient journey of becoming ill, perhaps getting better, perhaps getting not getting better, going into hospital, not going into hospital. They're familiar with a lot of that situation. What they're not familiar with is 
essentially this degree of unknown, uh, an illness where there is not medicines that will make them better, where they are unaware or unsure as to what treatments they would or won't be offered and whether those are things that are going to be decided by policy rather than on a case-by-case -case basis. At, at, at the moment, it's, it's very much treating things the way we, we would do naturally and by making sure that patients are the highest risk patients are filtered out at the front door and contacted within minutes to two hours of the patient contact coming in. We've not really had any situations where we've been where we've yet come up against any very difficult decisions. What we what we're at the moment discussing in the practice is what do we do about actively seeking out proactive conversations, which perhaps don't necessarily fit with the proactive conversations we're used to having. As there, there will be people potentially who. If they get this illness, they will not get better no matter no matter what. And at the moment, we don't know how those patients will be managed next week, the week after, the week after that. Um, to have a discussion about with that level of uncertainty is is difficult as what we're used to being able to do is say, this, uh, this treatment won't be suitable for you, this treatment won't be suitable for you, or that will be suitable for you. But at the moment, because we don't know where those lines are going to be, it is, it's a lot more challenging and we're a little bit wary of aggressively having those proactive conversations as if somebody's going to end up in a situation where they have this virus in a, in a very vulnerable position to spend the next three weeks of their, of their life sitting at home panicking about that, that eventuality. Thank you for that insight, Dr Cook. I appreciate that these conversations are incredibly difficult in the context of there being so many unknowns about the coronavirus uh, in terms of the syndrome that people may experience. One thing that I have found somewhat unhelpful is the media coverage that portrays the narrative that if you don't go to ITU, you don't get care. In my role as a geriatrician, I care for absolutely every one of my patients, no matter where they end up being looked after. And I wonder whether you had any perspectives in how we go about combating the view as care really does happen, uh, no matter what settings patients end, end up in. Yes, very much so. I think that's that's as as you say in as a as a geriatrician, very much the same as general practitioners. The vast majority of our patients are not going through hyperacute pathways. The vast majority of our patients aren't on illness trajectories that put them into super acute situations, and the vast vast majority of our care is never going to hit those sorts of peaks. And a lot of uh, equally clearly, many of our patients uh, with palliative care or long term health health needs, we never sort of talk about those sorts of sort of hyperacute situations. So I think the Clearly, care, as you say, care isn't necessarily how many machines can you throw at the situation. It's it's what's the right thing for the individual, and that's at the moment we've been have more than the capacity to make sure every every decision is purely based on that individual's needs and care. And if policy comes above that, we will deal with those challenges when they come in. But at the moment, yes, it's all about making sure that the the decision is is there for the patient, and the communication is with the patient, and the the communication is a big part of that care. Thanks. I quite like what you said there um, in terms of care not being equal to how many machines you can chuck at it. And it's about highlighting what's important for each and every individual. And I think that's a really important message to be conveying at the moment. One thing I wanted to explore with you was how you're managing with staff absence. As I read a statistic recently that one in four healthcare workers were either absent due to being unwell themselves or due to the need to self-isolate. And I wonder how you guys were coping with that. So we've we've had a bit of a, a mixed experience with with certain elements of that. We we do have some staff members who who would meet shielding criteria, and as a result, 
built were relatively early sent home um, until we could provide a safe working environment for them. We were already working on some IT from home options um, as a practice, which fortunately we've been able to expand within the within the limits of what IT we've been able to source. And whilst I entirely understand the reasons behind it, the, the wheels with the more the more levels of management and, and the more levels of, of, of rules with things like IT you've got to go through, the slower the slower the, the things are delivered at the other end. So we did have periods where uh, some of our most senior decision makers were without the provision to be able to work for us. Uh, but we thought it was important that if we can't provide a safe working environment, we can't have them working with us at the time. In terms of actual absence, we've been relatively fortunate so far. I would say that this, certainly we've been below the below the sort of 25% threshold. We have had periods where certain staff members early on were self-isolating to travel and uh, other staff members were self-isolating due to symptoms within the household. At the moment, due to a combination of, sort of flexible working from, from permanent members of staff and utilising what IT we have, we've still been able to meet full patient demand at the moment. But as some of the, the measures that we put in earlier, we were anticipating far higher staff illness than we've so far experienced. And as the Northeast is, is more affected by this virus, we do anticipate that increasing. And that's why we've, we've gone as much as we can to build clinical priority wiggle room in, in sort of essentially cutting out some of the work that we're, we're able to offer. Thank you very much for giving us your perspective on that. I think in terms of utilising your existing system to reduce face-to-face contacts and as far as you can having only the people in the building that need to be there, I feel that you're faring quite well uh, on this um, issue. I just wanted to move the conversation on a little bit more now. Obviously, COVID will come to an end and there will be a period of reflection and recovery um, as this subsides. I was wondering if you had any perspectives as to what positives you could possibly bring out of this situation in terms of your practice going forward in the future. I mean, it may be a little bit early to go into anything too specific, but I just wondered whether you had any perspectives on that. Well, yes, that that is quite a challenging question to to predict. Um, I, I think certainly the face of general practice will be extremely different. The the creep of technology as a way of managing increasing patient numbers and increasing increasing comorbidity with more efficient use of the individuals providing the care, I think, will continue, and it's something which will give a significant skills jump for the for the clinicians and a significant expectation shift for for patients, as it is something we've been working on for for nearly two years now and it had been a bit of a challenge to bring the patients with us even though it was clearly giving some benefit in terms of what we could provide with the the same amount of resources. I think sort of culturally one of the things which I think it will do is it will regrettably I think it will shift the cultural discussion and cultural beliefs around around death and vulnerability and and accessing healthcare um, in the UK. I do think it will make those sorts of conversations far more informed and and possibly, as I say, potentially entirely shift the culture about the about the UK's attitudes towards death and healthcare as to medicine isn't necessarily always the answer. Medicine isn't necessarily the more the better. Um, medicine is, like anything else, a, a means to an end and a, a risk versus benefit um, decision. And, and I think that will bring a lot of more of that into the sort of public awareness. Thank you very much for your perspective on that. And I think that's possibly all I wanted to explore with you today. Just to say thank you very, very much for your time. I know you're a very busy clinician, so um, thanks for talking to me today. Not a problem at all. Thank you very much for having me.